Morning, everybody. How are we doing back there? That's good. Thank you. That's wonderful. Uh, well, um, <clears throat> this is the third uh, of a five-week series of talks about uh, the Reformation as we prepare for Reformation 500, the 500th anniversary of Martin Luther's posting his 95 theses um, on October 31st, 1517. Uh, so we have, um, uh, yeah, what, I don't know, um, 12 sleeps or something like that to go. Um, I'm not good at maths on my feet. I should have worked that one out earlier. But we're nearly there. Um, and so far we've heard about two key events in Martin Luther's life. Uh, in 1515, Martin Luther became a Christian, aged 32. Now, Martin had been raised in a hard-working, religiously conservative, upwardly mobile peasant family. As a God-fearer, he had become a monk, and for a number of years he had devoted himself to trying to, to work really hard at, at being saved and getting saved according to the prevailing ideas of the time, medieval Roman Catholicism. And two weeks ago we, we learned uh, in detail, um, we looked at what this meant. How, how can you possibly be saved? according to the, the, the time in which he lived. Well, he became a monk. He devoted himself to, to the sacraments, to going on pilgrimages, to viewing holy relics and indulgences and confession and, and things like that. You see, medieval Roman Catholicism taught that people were saved by grace, but you had to get enough of it. They, that is to say, they thought of grace like a commodity. It wasn't simply the kindness of God. Grace was like hard, heavenly currency that the church administered and distributed with authority. But, so you had to get enough grace, and you secured grace, basically, through good works. And hopefully you secured enough grace to get to heaven. But you could never be sure. Because ultimately, it all depended on you. And, and for Martin, who, who thought deeply about these things, that was just torturous. A constant fearfulness, living in the dread of a holy God who seemed to delight in condemning sinners. But along the way, Martin was given the job of a Bible lecturer at the University of Wittenberg. And it was in that role that he started to study the New Testament in detail. And it was then that he realized that the Christian gospel was actually totally different. Indeed, the complete opposite of the message that he'd grown up with. Jesus has done it all for us on the cross. It's finished. We are saved by grace and by grace alone. We contribute nothing. To our salvation. And we're justified by faith and by faith alone. We are counted as righteous by God without blame, sin, stain, or accusation in His presence. We are His children. We, 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 we are welcomed the moment we put our faith in Jesus, God's Son. And Martin knew immediately that this good news changed everything, set free. From the fear of condemnation, Martin could live life as 
God intended, living with God and for God in the power of the Holy Spirit through Jesus Christ, his Lord. Uh, to, to, to quote another Martin Luther from another century, free at last, free at last, thank God Almighty, free at last. Martin had moved from God-fearer to Christian, a child of the Most High God. And uh, last week we considered uh, the fact that now Martin's understanding of the Christian gospel would inevitably put him on a collision course with the religious authorities. And last week we looked in detail at how that collision took place. And it was the year 1517. Two years after Martin's conversion, Pope Leo X was trying to raise funds for the completion of a massive building project that had been started by his predecessor, the building of St. Peter's Basilica in Rome. And Pope Leo tried to raise the money by selling something called an indulgence. And last week we looked at indulgences and Martin's response to this form of fundraising and we looked at it in detail last week. And as we heard, Martin was indignant for a lot of reasons. In fact, for 95 reasons. And October the 31st, 1517, Martin nailed his 95 theses to the door of All Saints Church, Wittenberg. And he mailed a copy to his boss, um, Albert Brandenburg, Archbishop of Mainz. And uh, last week, we, we saw how and why this document went viral. And it did. I mean, it just spread far and wide. Within a matter of days, Germany was in uproar. And Luther was a household name. And to many, a national hero. And one of the reasons for Luther's sudden fame was that he told the Pope, the most powerful man in Europe, he told the Pope that he was wrong. Well, that was 1517. Today, I kind of want to speed forward to the next great milestone in Martin Luther's life, and indeed in the development of the, the European Reformation, which is the Diet of Worms in 1521. Um, and the Diet of Worms is, when you see it written in English, it says Diet of Worms, uh, which um, yeah, it creates endless jokes at Bible college in church history classes, but there you have it. So how do we get from 1517, uh, the posting of the 95 Theses, to the Diet of Worms in 1521? Well, as soon as Rome, as soon as Pope Leo discovered what Martin had written, Martin was summoned to go to Rome. But Martin didn't go to Rome. Um, Martin had friends in high places. Last week I mentioned one of them, Prince Frederick the Wise, Elector of Saxony. Uh, um, uh, he he uh, technically was his boss at the university, and uh, he owned a vast collection. That vast collection I spoke of last week of holy relics in Wittenberg, 5,005 pieces. Well, Frederick had read Martin's works and was moved by them. Um, he also knew well enough what was probably in store for Martin, if he went to Rome, which is basically torture at the hands of the Inquisition, followed by being burnt at the stake as a heretic. Um, Rome, you see, didn't really do trials, uh, not as we would understand them today. It did what we might call today a, a show trial. It did show trials. And in fairness to the age, few people would really have understood the difference. 
what offended Martin really, what really got their goat was that he dared to contradict the Pope. Um, well, Frederick, Prince Frederick, he wrangled things so that Martin could be tried in Germany. After all, Martin and Frederick were both Germans at a time when national identity was becoming very important and when Germans didn't necessarily like being told what to do by Italians. Um, in the year 1518, Martin was interviewed, therefore, by a cardinal sent to Germany by Pope Leo, and his name was Cardinal Cayetan. Now, as far as the religious authorities were concerned, this was a straightforward matter. Martin had contradicted the Pope, uh, undermining his authority. He could be forgiven. All he had to do was to say one word, Ruoco, a Latin word meaning, I recant. Um, this means that Martin would be saying, I renounce and abandon and turn aside from all my wrong ideas, from my heretical ideas. Now, Martin had made it perfectly clear right from the start that he was absolutely prepared to recant. He'd do it with pleasure. He was willing to recant, wanting to recant, waiting to recant, and indeed to be in the church's good books, as surely he would be, he reasoned, just as soon as they better understood him. If Martin said Rewoko, he'd be forgiven, and all would be good again. Who knows, they may even make him a cardinal. Um... He just, he just needed, Martin just felt, they just need to understand me better or show me where I've erred. So how did the interview with Cardinal Cayetan go? It went badly. Um, that's because Cardinal Cayetan just wanted to hear one word, Rewoko. And Martin was happy to say it, but he wanted Cayetan to show him specifically which ideas were offensive. And when he did, Martin's response was essentially, uh, no, actually, I'm, I'm right about that. And the Bible and church history are behind me. Uh, if I'm in the wrong here, you need to show me to my satisfaction where I'm wrong. Well, fast forward to 1521. Martin is again on trial. Still in Germany, now in the city of Worms. Uh, Martin has used those three years uh, um, really well. He's been really busy. After nailing his 95 theses to the church door, um, he would publish a number of books and tracts, and they were bestsellers. Uh, national, uh, Martin was a national hero, and his uh, books included titles such as A Sermon on Good Works, The Papacy at Rome, Address to the German Nobility, the Babylonian captivity of the church and on the freedom of the Christian man. And those tracks and that working in that time allowed Martin to firm up his position and what he saw was, no, actually, the Pope isn't Christ's vicar. Um, he's Christ's enemy. He's an antichrist. Um, well, the dear to Worms was like a, a royal commission in scope and importance, an investigation involving both religious authorities and also the emperor. He was there. And it was an investigation into whether or not Martin was a heretic. Again, as far as the religious authorities were concerned, Martin's life hung in the balance and could only be saved if he uttered one word, and one word only, Rowoko. 
Well, uh, when Martin was summoned and brought in, he was shown uh, a table on which was assembled all of his works. And the first question to Martin was, are these books yours? In a timid, barely audible voice, Martin replied, um, the books are mine, but I have written more. <laughs> the second question to Martin, do you defend them or do you reject some? Martin thought about this out loud, saying, this touches God and his word. This affects the salvation of souls of of this, Christ said, he who denies me before men, him will I deny before my father. To say too little or too much would be dangerous. Um, I, I beg you, give me more time to think it over. Uh, his accuser, a man named Johann Eck, was incredulous. You're a university professor of theology, and you've come here for the very purpose of defending your position. You ought to be ready anywhere and any time for a discussion such as this. How can you possibly need more time? But the emperor was sympathetic, and he was granted 24 hours to think over his position. Poor Martin was terrified. I mean, his life was in the balance. And perhaps like Paul and many others, he, he could be razor sharp in writing, but his courage failed him when he was in front of people. But at 6 p.m. the next day, Martin was ready and firing on all 12 cylinders. Um, he opened by saying that all of the books on display were his, but weren't all of the same kind of book. One set of his books and writings deals with the gospel and Christian life. Another set, he said, dealt with the evil lives and teaching of the popes by which the Christian world had been left desolate. No! The emperor cried. And lots of people would have been thinking, I can't believe I'm hearing this. I just can't believe I've heard those words. Man continued, not missing a beat. A third set deals with attacks on private individuals. I confess that I have been more caustic than is fitting to my profession. But if I'm being judged on teachings about Jesus, then I cannot renounce these works without increasing tyranny and impiety. Martin said, if I am shown my error, I will be the first to throw my books onto the fire. But he insisted to be shown his error by reference to the Bible. And if you were here last week, you may remember that we saw that Martin's fundamental argument was not, hey, Pope Leo, you're wrong, but rather, hey, Pope Leo, the Bible says you're wrong. And that stand was totally unacceptable to his prosecutor, Eck. All heretics appeal to the Bible. How can you be so arrogant as to assume that you're the only person to understand the Bible? Are you claiming to know more about the Bible than all the fathers before you? You have no right to call the judgment of the church into question. This is outrageous and outrageously arrogant. Do you or do you not repudiate your books? Since then, your majesty and your lordships desire a simple reply, I will answer without horns and without teeth. Unless I am convicted by scripture and plain reason, and I do not accept the authority of popes and church councils, for they have contradicted each other endlessly, my conscience is captive to the word of God. 
I cannot and will not recant anything, for to go against conscience is neither right nor safe. Here I stand. I can do not otherwise. God help me. Amen. Well, Martin said this uh, in German. And after receiving the request to say it again in Latin, the, the international language, uh, he did so, and uh, then he left. Uh, the next day, the Diet of Worms pronounced him a heretic. But he wasn't burnt, as we shall see next week. But, but to think about his speech for a moment, there are many reasons, really, why this speech has gone down in history as one of the greatest speeches in history. I mean, here are two reasons. Firstly, Martin's refusal to go against the dictates of his own conscience. That resonates with everybody, doesn't it? I mean, you don't have to be a theologian or a Protestant or, a, or even a Christian to be deeply moved by his here I stand, I can do no other statement. And uh, since that time, those words have been used, repeated a countless number of times by people whose conscience would not allow them to do something that others felt they could force them to do. Um, here I stand. I can do no other. I will not violate my conscience. Uh, secondly, Martin's refusal to believe something simply because those in authority believe that they had the right to force belief. Again, you don't have to agree with Martin's ideas to agree with his world-changing stance. I will not be told, I will not be dictated to with respect to what to think. Freedom, freedom of conscience and freedom of thought as an individual. These two ideas are foundational to our contemporary Western culture, shaping our notions, for example, of freedom of speech, freedom of assembly, freedom of the press, freedom of loyal opposition to government. Freedom of thought and freedom of conscience, these two ideas are foundational to our Western culture, a culture which is, of course, now under serious internal threat. Uh, but, but that's another story. But for us as Christians, a third reason why this speech is so revolutionary is that um, it's the theological truth that is so important, a truth that is encapsulated in this one phrase, sola scriptura. Sola scriptura means scripture alone. Um, and as with the other four sola or uh, alone statements, it needs to be unpacked. Uh, sola scriptura contains three ideas. Firstly, authority. The Bible alone sits in the place of supreme authority with respect to all matters of faith and doctrine. Secondly, clarity. The Bible is not an obscure book that only trained priests are allowed to read and only the Pope is allowed to interpret. It is clear and easy to read. Everyone should read it. Its message is clear. And thirdly, sufficiency. The Bible contains all that is necessary for salvation. You cannot insist that something is needed to be saved if it's not clear in Scripture. Now, each of these ideas is actually a can of worms, really. Um, a, a can of worms from the diet of worms. Um, <coughs> if you'll forgive a really awful pun. Uh, and it's going to take more than one sermon to unpack all the relevant stuff. However, as Anglican Christians, this is our position, uh, that each of these statements is totally correct. And I think we are right in saying that these things are right. 
But returning to Martin's day, how did Roman Catholic scholars respond to these ideas? Well, Martin's Goliath, uh, if uh, Martin can be allowed to be, uh, Martin the monk can be allowed to be David, well then Martin's Goliath was a man named Johann Eck, although not the same Johann Eck I've just mentioned at the Diet of Worms, another one. Um, and this is how he reacted in extended debate with Martin. Uh, basically, his position is the church has greater authority than the Bible, and it is the doctrine of canon that demonstrates this to be true. Firstly, the Bible doesn't define the canon, rather the church does. Therefore, the church has authority over the Bible, not the other way around. Now, the, the doctrine of, of canon or canonicity, that's all about the idea of some books go in the Bible and other books don't go in the Bible. Um, in the first couple of centuries after Jesus, many, many Christians were writing many, many things. But of the thousands of writings from that period of time, only 27 documents, actually, only 27 were recognized as being God's word. In the same way that the Old Testament was God's word. And only those 27 documents were incorporated into the Bible uh, to form the New Testament um, uh, alongside the Old Testament. So then, for example, the Gospel of Matthew was included, but not the Gospels of Thomas or Bartholomew. Martin X said, the New Testament refers to itself as sacred scripture, but without the faintest sense anywhere that it is a closed set of books, the apostles must have taught more than was written down. Furthermore, he continued, in the first century there was no canon, but there was a church. Therefore, the canon arose out of the church, not the other way around. The church, by definition, also has the presence of the Holy Spirit. And in John 16, Jesus says, when the Spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all truth. That strongly implies that as the church continues, the Holy Spirit will continue to teach and reveal things through the church. I mean, as an example, how do any of us know that the Gospel of Matthew, for example, was written by Matthew? Well, we only know it by church tradition. In other words, we only know it because the church says so. In summary... The Bible is the product of the church, and so the church has authority over the Bible, and it can add to it authoritatively, therefore, any time she wishes to. Secondly, the idea of sola scriptura is impractical. How do you resolve arguments over the interpretation of Scripture? The judge must be the church, especially the bishops. And what about different interpretations? Scripture can be notoriously difficult to interpret, and scholars are often seemingly saying that it says exactly the opposite to what it seems to say. It is not clear. If you allow everyday Christians, lay Christians, if you, horror of horrors, if you allow them to read the, oh, the Bible for themselves, oh, in their own language, disaster. You'll get as many different interpretations as there are Christians, and therefore ultimately as many, as many denominations as there are Christians. I'm Stephen Daly. I belong to Stephen Dalyanism. <laughs> How thrilled will be the Jew and the Turk to see that Christians agree that they can't agree on what it is they actually believe. 
Martin, you're threatening the very basis of our society. In conclusion, the Protestant idea of sola scriptura is self-defeating. The Bible only has authority as long as the church says it has authority. I think we might be on the next slide. My notes are wrong. Yeah, that's right. Um, <clears throat> thank you. In conclusion, the Protestant idea of sola scriptura is self-defeating. The Bible only has authority as long as the church says it has authority. The church is the highest authority, and it interprets authoritatively. Scripture is not the highest authority. The church is, and the Pope is, when he speaks as head of the church. Scripture is not sufficient. The New Testament, reasonably, is only a small subset of all the things that the apostles taught, and the Pope, as the ordained successor to Peter, Bishop of Rome, may likewise, just as Peter and Paul spoke authoritatively, their successor, his successor may speak authoritatively and add teachings and traditions to the church. And lastly, Scripture is not clear. And therefore, the interpretation of Scripture is the church's job. Ultimately, it's the Pope's job for the reasons just described. Well, <clears throat> how did Martin and his fellow reformers respond? Uh, well, they, they made a number of points, but all of their points were based upon a very simple idea. And that simple idea is that the Bible is God's word, and we know it's God's word because it says it's God's word, and we hear it as God's word. Um, I won't go into as much detail here as I could because I've taught on this stuff, to, uh, stuff before, but suffice to say, the Bible considers itself, every single word of it, to be God's word. And if it's God's word, it simply has to be the highest authority. It can never be contradicted. By a human word, that would be nonsense. If it's God's word, it is the highest authority. It is inspired. It is inspired in the sense of the Holy Spirit speaking through the author. But, but I mean, many things are inspirational. No, but the Bible is inspired in such way that it is exactly what God wanted said in the way God wanted it said, such that it is right to say of any words in the Bible God says this. Given that that is what Scripture says about itself, it must, first of all, have the highest possible authority. God's Word is the highest authority, and no human authority can confirm or add or subtract or validate it. Scripture is not authenticated by the church. Rather, canonization is recognition, not authorization. Historically, the early church recognized that 27 documents had apostolic op uh, uh, origin and were God's word in the same way that the Old Testament was God's word. You see, Jesus said, my sheep hear my voice. Scripture uh, for the born-again Christian, Scripture is self-authenticating because you hear the Lord's voice in it. Christians recognizing their Lord's voice, Scripture is self-authenticating, just as the color green is self-authenticating. We don't decide what is green and what isn't green. We just simply recognize, yeah, that's green. And that isn't. As Paul wrote to the Thessalonian Christians, when you receive the Word of God which you heard from us, you accepted it not as a human word, 
But as it actually is, the word of God, which is indeed at work in you who believe. Uh, Further, Scripture judges the church, not the other way around. By attending to the teachings of Scripture, the church, past, present, and future, keeps herself on the right course. Martin said, Scripture alone is the true Lord and Master of all teachings on earth. It judges men's books, not the other way around. And he is, of course, right. Well, there's much more to say about these things, but I've said enough for today. I will continue to unpack these ideas next week. But just to restate my conclusion, Martin was right. Fundamentally, all Christian ministry is one form or another of basically teaching the Bible. We can have confidence in our ministry when it is based on the Bible. Why? Well, because we're in the business of gathering the Lord's sheep and caring for sheep, and the sheep will hear the shepherd's voice when we hold on to and teach his word, which is the Bible. The Lord be with you.